You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. James 5, 7 through 12. Let's read today. James 5, 7 through 12. Uh, all the verses today will be on the screen. And as I'm getting there as well, uh, if you can, if you have a paper Bible, turn also to Job because we will be in Job. And so just in case, Job chapter 1 is where we're going to be. So as I'm reading this, or after I'm done, you know, read along. But, you know, eventually get there. Job 1. <laughs> All right. James, or James chapter 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So we will get to verses one through six next week. Uh, But for this week, my iPad will play around with me. All right. It says, be patient, verse 7, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And so we, from the very beginning, right, be patient um, because Jesus is coming back. So a little bit of uh, audience of participation today. So I want you to repeat after me. Say, be patient. Be patient. There you go. Jesus is, back. Jesus is coming back. One more time. Be patient. Be patient. Jesus, is Jesus is coming back. Yes, and we will repeat that a lot today because I want you to hold on to that very statement that we must be patient because Jesus is, is coming back. Um, And so I love, right, that James starts out with this verse here when he's talking about suffering. Uh, Because right in the very beginning, we learned in James chapter 1, he says, Count it as pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Right? You've heard over and over again, if you've heard my preaching, many times I've talked about how suffering is common to human beings. But also, it doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you are immune from suffering. Rather, as Christians, we suffer, we go through trials differently than those around us who don't know the Lord. We have a hope that we're holding on to. We're reminding ourselves every single time that we're going through it that we must be patient because Jesus is coming back. And so he says, therefore, right? So right here he says, be patient, therefore. And he says, therefore, because it's there for a reason. Because we learned, right, he says, count it pure joy, right? He's talked about the church and how they were having favoritism. They were, you know, using their tongue to spread evil. They were talking about all these different things. They were judging one another with wrong motives. There was a lot. There was murder. There was, a, there was rich people causing problems for the poor people. There were so many issues happening here in the book of James. And he says, be patient, therefore. So therefore, all that stuff that you just heard in this letter, as they heard the first time, he's saying, be patient. Why? Because 
The Lord is coming back until the coming of the Lord. He says, despite all the craziness happening in the churches and the world around them, be patient for the coming of the Lord because he is coming. And they knew he was coming. And his coming again, his second coming is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time, but it still hasn't happened yet, right? And so that's why we say we live in the already but not yet, where we can see the Lord, we can see God moving in our world today in small glimpses and small things, but yet we still have suffering and evil and wickedness and death all around us. And so in the meantime, James is calling us to be a patient people despite all of the suffering. Despite things not looking the way we hoped, he says, be patient. Despite the world saying things that scare us, be patient. Despite the news around us, be patient. Despite the diagnosis, be patient. Despite the loss, be patient. Despite the Lord seeming slow, be patient. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The farmer goes and he plants seeds, right? And then he would have to ration out the last harvest in order to make it to the next harvest. So he's hoping that whatever he held back, whatever he put back, whatever he did, that it would be long enough before the next harvest because it wasn't like they had fast food. It wasn't like they could just go to the grocery store. Like they had to wait. The farmer had to wait for the early and the late rains. He had to be patient about it. And so the farmer goes and he plants, right? But the next harvest wasn't promised. Right, and the timing of that harvest wasn't always sure. He didn't know exactly when the fruit would come. He didn't know exactly when the crops would show and be ripe and ready to harvest. It depended on the rains. The farmer had to trust that God was going to bring the rains, but there was the early rains and then the late rains. And so James continues. He says, you also be patient, once again reminding us. And he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You can imagine when the farmer, when his rations got low or disappeared, that the farmer would feel like giving up. He would feel as if the Lord wasn't coming through like he said he would. You would feel the, the farmers just maybe questioning whether or not God is actually a good God. You would feel the farmers start to wonder, am I actually doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And we can feel like that too, right? But church, I tell you today that if you just hold on, let me remind you that Jesus is coming back. God is still on the throne. It will work out. He will provide. He will be with you even though it seems like nothing is left. And we, as James is calling us, is that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of when we feel like nothing is working out and no answer suffices, he says, establish your hearts because the coming of the Lord is at hand. And I know that it's been over 2,000 years since the Lord had gone into heaven, but we are, must be reminded of 2 Peter 3.8 that tells us, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years as one day. We feel like we've been waiting thousands of years because we have, but yet it just feels like a day or two to our God in heaven. And Jesus, too, is wanting to come back for his bride 
bride, but even he does not know when God is going, God the Father is going to send him back. And so in the same way that we are eager, that Romans 8 talks about how creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God to be shown, for Jesus to come back, for the world to be fixed, that Jesus too is waiting and wanting and pushing and wanting to go and rescue his bride, rescue the girl, rescue us, the church today. And so we must just hold on, establish our hearts, and be patient. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Verse 9 says this, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There's a tendency in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, to start to blame other people for the suffering we're going through. There's a tendency that we, that's, even though sometimes they could have played a factor, but we must not grumble or accuse one another, right? There should be only one accuser in our life, and that should be Satan and not us. We should not be going around accusing other people, other things of causing what we're going through because we don't know why we're going through what we're going through, and we'll read that later in Job, but we don't know. And so James is saying, hey, in the midst of suffering, do not grumble or complain against one another. Do not accuse one another. Do not have these words against one another, but instead, why? Because the judge is standing at the door. And so we must be like Jesus and not Satan. And it goes back to us, as I preached a few weeks ago, trying to judge with wrong motives those around us instead of holding fast to the Lord and establishing our hearts and being patient. One commentator says this, it says, James pictured Jesus, the judge, poised, standing at the door of heaven, ready to welcome Christians into his heavenly throne room in the hope of his imminent any moment return should strongly motivate us to live patiently and sacrificially now. Not just going around blaming all those around us and accusing people around us, but rather holding on, establishing our hearts, being patient, knowing that the harvest is coming, knowing that Jesus is coming. This is why we have language in Scripture that says, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. It says twice, one in Thessalonians, one in Galatians, because there is a tendency that in the midst of trials, we question whether or not the Christian life is worth living because we the world around us says, if that's true, then you should not be going through those things as we'll see in Job, but that's not the truth. The truth is regardless of whether or not you're living the Christian life and trying to pursue Jesus, you will go through suffering and trials and trauma and loss. Why? Because we live in a broken, sin-filled world that one day will be redeemed again. And so we hold on to that. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Right? You have people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Samuel, Daniel, and the many more watched as, right, as everyone and everything around them was crumbling and, or had crumbled, and yet they continued to do what the Lord asked. If you want to see strict obedience and somebody going through suffering and going through stuff, go read the book of Ezekiel and see the crazy things that God called him to do, and yet he held on and stayed steadfast despite everything going on in front of him. Right? You go to Hosea, who was asked to marry a prostitute and kept having to go get her back from like, you know, from the whorehouse, essentially, 
over and over again because all that she did was she would have a kid with Hosea and then go right back to her old life, not realizing the life that she had. And it was a resemblance of how Israel was taken care of by God, but yet time and time again, God was never enough for Israel. And so they went back to worshiping idols. They went back to their old life. They went back to what they thought would work instead of trusting that God was doing something that they couldn't see in the moment. That's why he says, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. If you want an example of suffering and patience, take any of the servants of the Lord and you can see that even the heroes of the Bible were not immune to suffering. Verse 11, he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so who is Job? We're actually going to read. Go to, this is where, uh, turn to Job 1, and we're going to read just a small bit of who Job was so that we understand why James was saying that. So Job chapter 1, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. It says this, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it might be that my children may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So we go back to James's words. He says this, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's saying, don't forget Job. And so what happens next in the story of Job? Job then, at first, it was, Satan was allowed to touch all of the things of Job. All of his family, it was allowed to take all of his money, his, his resources, his, all that stuff. That everything, everything was taken away in a moment's notice. And then Satan says, well, of course, right? Then Job did not sin against God. He says, naked I came, naked I'll go back. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I lost everything, but God is still on the throne. And then what happens next? Satan says, well, the reason he did not curse you is because... You didn't take away his health. Let me touch his health, and then I guarantee he'll curse you to your face. So what does God do? He says, okay, go ahead, but you cannot kill him. And so he goes, and he gives Job all these boils and this skin disease. And so Job is then suffering and in pain and trying to scrape. It says like the, 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 the scabs, the, the sores with pottery to make him feel better. And so in this moment, he's crying out, but yet Job still does not curse the name of God. And it comes to the point where his wife even says, obviously, I'm paraphrasing, obviously God's not there, so why don't you curse him to his face and die? And so he says, look at Job. And so what do we learn from Job, right? We see that his friends showed up, and for 30-plus chapters, they tried to tell him all the reasons why he was suffering when they had no clue. They had no clue this conversation between God and Satan, and they had no clue the conversation that God, his, God's plan of redemption and everything else that was in plan. He didn't know any of that. None of the friends knew it. They just started saying, well, if you weren't wicked, if you weren't sinning, if you weren't doing this, if you were righteous, if you would do the right things, then none of the suffering would come your way when in fact, right, that's not true because Job did nothing wrong, right? And yet he went through all this suffering and trial. And so the best thing that they did was just sit with him while he mourned. And so for those who are suffering, right, we must just, we just need to be with these people, right? For those around us who are suffering, the best thing sometimes that we can do is to keep our mouths shut and not explain why they're going through their suffering, but rather just sit there with them and cry with them and mourn and just be there for them so that they can know that somebody's there. And eventually, eventually there will come a time when you can come and tell them about something like James 5, and you could tell them about 1 Peter, and you could tell them about Romans, and you can tell them about the Word of God to help them. But sometimes in the very beginning, in the most difficult moments, all you need to do and all you should be doing is just sitting with these people and mourning instead of telling them why they're suffering, because we don't know why. We don't have the reasons why. Everyone is there at first when somebody goes through suffering, but as time passes, people stop asking, how are you? People stop asking, can we just meet up for lunch or dinner? Everyone suffers differently, but it doesn't mean that people have stopped suffering or mourning the loss of someone, the, the loss of something, the loss of something in their life that they went through. It doesn't mean that they've stopped mourning. 
It comes in waves. We all know how it feels when wave after wave keep hitting us. We all know how it feels like when it feels like we're drowning in, in everything going wrong in our life. It feels like there's never time to rest or recover. It seems like all we can do is keep treading or in the words of the famous philosopher Dory, just keep swimming. And through a story like Job, we don't get the, the full answer of why we go through suffering, but rather we get enough to keep going. We, don't, we know the Lord is in control the whole time in the story of Job. We know that Satan couldn't do anything without the permission of God. God speaks when he needs to speak, and his moves are always perfect in his timing. And whether we realize it or not, right, God is moving in the story of Job more than any of his friends or Satan realizes that Satan thought he was doing something that would ruin God, and yet here we are today, some of us going through deep, dark suffering, and yet being able to look at the story of Job, and God knew that, and that's why God kept Job the entire time that he was going through this, in the same way that he can keep you today, and will keep you despite whatever it is you're going through. Job was not always patient, but he was determined to endure whatever came at him, Yet he always returned to committing himself wholly to God and showed the spirit of submission to God. Despite him losing everything, his friends accusing him of things he didn't do, and his wife telling him to curse God. And yet Job held fast to the Lord, establishing his heart, being patient, knowing that the Lord was going to exonerate him and, and everything else. The patience James was talking about was a patience that restrains itself and does not retaliate, which leads us to verse 12. It says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James was advocating for integrity in the midst of suffering, or shall we just say the Christian life people were going to great lengths to bring confidence that they were going to do what they said they were going to do, but rather, what if we're the people in and out of suffering that when we say yes, we mean yes, and when we say no, we mean no, and when we say we'll be there at that time, despite any circumstances going on in our life, we still say we'll be there at that, we'll be there at that time. When we say we're going to do something, we do the thing we say we're going to do. Why? Because as Christians, it doesn't matter. It doesn't say if life is going well, then have character. If life is going well, then stay. It says let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's saying despite all your suffering, despite all your circumstances, that it doesn't mean that you have to stop living this life of integrity, that you then get to make excuses while you fall back into sin and back into temptation and back into your old way of life because of life spinning all around all the way around you when instead James is saying, hey, be patient. Hey, establish your hearts. Hey, hold fast to the Lord. Look at the prophets. Look at Job. Look at these guys who pursued the Lord, yet the world was spinning, world was spinning around them, yet they held fast the entire time, and they did not lose their integrity and their character despite it all. And so James is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I think James said this because it's easy to give up during suffering. It's easy to say, well, obviously Jesus doesn't care, so why should I read my Bible today? Why should I pray? Why should I do the things that Christ has called me to do? Why should I be generous with my time and resources if God 
isn't doing what he said he would do, when God always does what he says he's going to do. Our circumstances don't change that. Because the prophets kept prophesying. Job kept asking questions. The farmer is still hoping for the rains, and they were all looking forward to God doing God things. And they were trusting in his provision. They were trusting in his timing. They were holding on to the Lord's character, even though they couldn't see his hand moving. See, my job here at Living Grace is to preach the word every single week. And every time I get to preach the gospel, every single time I preach the good news of Jesus, seeds are being thrown out left and right to those who are lost, right? I'm planting seeds here, planting seeds there. Sometimes I get to see, right, the fruit of that. Sometimes I don't. And then some of y'all have been saved and, and you love the Lord. And so I get to water the, gro- the, the, your, the, the plant in your life, shall we say, the spiritual plant in your life. I get to water it by preaching the gospel, to reminding you, hey, be patient, reminding you, establish your hearts, reminding you, hey, this isn't the end all. Like this world, we're only here for so long. You know, some of us are promised, you know, we're not promised tomorrow. Some of us will be here in the next 40 years. Some of us won't be here the next 20 years, right? Is that we're not promised because we're holding on as Christians to this world that is coming, not this world that is here right now. And so this is why I can stand up here and preach the same thing week in and week out with a little bit of different verse here, a different illustration there, because I know my job is to plant the seeds or water the seeds, but I am holding on to that God is the one who makes things grow is what the Bible tells us, right? I am simply simply a servant of his called to do my job and not his job. And I wish I was further along in areas in my life. And I wish some of us were further along in areas of our lives. But I am trusting in God's timing and trusting what he wants me to do is the best thing. And Jesus himself understood this. Early in his ministry, when he walked into the temple and saw the money changers He started flipping tables. Everybody knows this story. It's a famous story of Jesus. But most people don't remember what he says after. uh, This is John chapter 2. The people responded like this. It says, the Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple And you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Everybody remembers Jesus flipping tables, doing Jesus things, but nobody remembers that line where Jesus says, kill me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, put me on the cross. Jesus knew his job was to come and die. Ruben, I'm about to be finished. And Jesus knew his job was to come and die. And right here in this passage, he tells them, kill me. He saw the wickedness of the money changers in the temple. He saw the suffering. He saw the evil. And his response was, kill me. He didn't want to commit suicide. That's not what he's saying here. He just wanted sin and death to be defeated. He wanted us to know his love. He wanted us to know that he too knows what suffering feels like and is with us the whole entire way. 
Every time that he was whipped, he knew what he was looking forward to. He knew the suffering in front of him couldn't compare to one day having his bride, the church, us with him forever, spotless at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He knew there would be a day when there was no more tears, suffering, being tired, but just pure joy and no evil. Church, that day is coming. We will see our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed away. We will see them again. We can rejoice here knowing that they are in no more pain, no more suffering. They are staring at our maker face to face, our savior, our best friend. They are the blessed ones, as James would say, for they endured. They held on to the end because it's not easy. I don't stand up here as if never going through some sort of suffering and not having to hold on to just the Lord's character and feeling like the Lord isn't working when I feel like I'm doing all the things for God. I know what it feels like to be there when you feel like God is not doing God things the way that we want him to. I've been there and seen it. But I can promise you that God, every single time that I have been in the valley, as you know, even Alina read earlier in Psalm 23, that when I was in the valley of shadow of death, when I was in the lowest parts of my life, that God was still with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. That he is with me. And as I've said before, that one day I hold on to that this thing that I'm holding on to, this thing that I'm going through, this suffering that I'm facing, these problems that are in my life, this whatever it is in front of me that is weighing me down and is a burden in my life and holding me is I'm holding on to and I'm saying one day that's going to be goodness and one day that's going to be mercy. One day I'm going to look back and that I'm going to see goodness and I'm going to see mercy. And church, I hold on to that. That whatever I'm holding on to doesn't compare with that moment when I get to see my Savior face to face. That moment when I don't have to be tired. When I don't have to suffer. When I don't have to hear that another person has passed away. When I don't have to hear that another person is diagnosed with cancer. I don't have to hear that anymore. And that's what I'm holding on to. And so be patient. Because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and we can hold on to that. One of my favorite quotes, and you've heard me say it a lot, is from a guy named Charles Spurgeon, and he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages, that every wave that keeps pushing me under, every wave that keeps throwing me off my feet, every wave that keeps pushing me from wanting to pursue Jesus I have learned to accept it and kiss it and embrace it because it throws me on my Savior all the more. And then I get to experience the love and depth of God in ways that I never would have if I didn't go through this momentary suffering, this temporal pain in my life. So church, be patient. Because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back again. And that's what we hold on to. We don't hold on to the pain's going to go away. We don't, we don't know when that's going to be. We hold on to the sure fact that Jesus is coming back again. And that is what we hold on to. That is the hope 
that we are building our life on as believers. And in the meantime, we live as those who actually know Christ. We don't grumble and complain, but we establish our hearts knowing that it's going to be worth it. And we don't grow weary in doing good because it'll be worth it. We will reap a harvest of righteousness. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.